following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Good morning. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to share with you all today. Uh, Just open up the word together. Um, We're going to take a little bit of a break from our norm and and today I'll be launching us into a four-week uh, series. A four-week series that, as Tim and I have discussed, we're going to look at why church, this, this topic of why church. Um, so I'm excited to start that series, and, and Tim will be back here uh, next week to continue it uh, on from there. If you are new here, you have realized, obviously, I'm not Tim, and so I do apologize if I disappoint, uh, if, you, if you're excited to tune in to listen to him. Um, hopefully you got a chance to hear the end of our our series in Matthew last week, and what a great time that was just to celebrate as we saw the risen King um, rise into heaven. And uh, so I'd just like to, again, say what an opportunity. I'm excited to, uh, to be here this morning. My wife, Erin, and I have been part of this church for about eight months, and you guys have been such a blessing to us. So thank you for welcoming us into your family. Several weeks ago, I met a, a guy at an event, and um, he's been living and working here in Chiang Mai for I think about eight years, uh, and originally from the U.S. I'm always amazed by the people I meet here because you see so many different stories. This gentleman in particular um, had felt and followed a calling to come to Chiang Mai and serve the local people. I know a lot of folks in our church are in that same um, same position, that you have left your uh, your passport country and you've come here to Chiang Mai. And so I, when I'm meeting people like this, I always enjoy just learning about them, asking questions, um, hearing their story. And I was excited just to hear this is a guy, he loves Jesus. I was, it was a really exciting for me to hear. His love for Jesus is what brought him here, is what, is what he followed here to Chiang Mai. But then I also learned that though he has a love for Jesus and though he's come to Chiang Mai because of his love for Jesus, um, he really doesn't attend a church. Uh, at least he doesn't attend one regularly. And, you know, I, I find that this story is not, is not too dissimilar from a lot of stories I've, I've heard across my life, and especially here in the last few months in Chiang Mai. There's amazing people who have moved across the world, followed Jesus, but yet um, they have not found themselves engaged in a local church. You know, I asked him why, I pressed in, and he said, you know, I visited all the churches in Chiang Mai, and so many great people, uh, but I just haven't found a church like the one that I had back home. I think uh, my story is not too dissimilar from his in some ways. Really, in the last five years, until moving here to, to Chiang Mai, uh, in a lot of ways, I looked at church mostly from my own perspective. Um, you know, what did it provide me on that Sunday or on that Wednesday Bible study? And I think there's a lot of reasons that people aren't engaged in church. I think some of those can be discouragement, like this gentleman I met. I think there's a part of him that's just discouraged. He hasn't found a community. I think for others, there's frustration. Uh, frustration with potentially the, the local times we have now, the, the COVID regulations that continue to change. Frustration with their family when they're just trying to get out the door. It seems like all hell breaks loose every Sunday. Um, you know, I think there's still others that, that there's probably some fear. Let's be honest. Uh, there are people in the church who, who have hurt other people. Maybe you are one of those people. 
And so maybe there's fear that if you, you come back into the, the, the church fellowship that you're going to be hurt again. And I just want to tell you and, and say to you, I'm sorry that you've been hurt in that way. Um, and I pray that you find comfort. I pray that you find uh, peace. But whether you're frustrated or whether you're discouraged or scared or we're tired or, or lacking conviction or whatever it is that's keeping us away from, from engaging in the, in the local church, um, I want us to, to really look at what is a reason that we should go the opposite way? What is a reason that we should be compelled to engage in the local church? And I don't just mean Sunday worship service. Yes, that's, that's part, of, part of church. But I'm also talking about the, the rich fellowship um, with our brothers and sisters. I'm, I'm also talking about events and activities and wherever God lead, leads you to walk in faith to engage. So our, our passage in Ephesians, we're going to be in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 this morning. And it's going to help us to answer this question. It's going to help us to answer this question of why should we be compelled to engage in church? And I think we'll see one that we will see throughout this passage that Christ's sacrifice compels us to engage in church. So if you will, turn with me to Ephesians 2. We're going to be starting in verse 11. And as you work to Ephesians 2, verse 11, as you're turning there, I just want to give a quick background and a, and a quick context. Maybe a 10,000-foot view, a 3,000-meter view for you metric-type people. Um, and really look at who wrote Ephesians. We know the Apostle Paul most likely wrote Ephesians. Pretty certain of that. He wrote Ephesians in around 60 AD um, from prison. He wrote to a church that he knew, the church of Ephesus he had visited uh, early in his ministry. We can see that in Acts 19 to 20. So these are a, a people he knew, a people made up of Jewish and Gentile Christians. It's interesting, though, when we look at Ephesians, it's dissimilar from some of the other of Paul's epistles in that it's not written to address a specific issue necessarily or a, or a conflict in the church. But rather, we see that the purpose of Ephesians is, is more broad. Um, one commentary writes that Paul's frequent references to the church as a mystery or a divine secret Previously unknown but now revealed, identify the apostles' main purpose in writing as having been the exposition of the mystery of the church. Paul's main purpose in writing Ephesians is the exposition of the ministry of the church. So let's zoom in to chapter 2. Um, and as we find ourselves to chapter 2, you're going to see that first word, therefore. So again, I'm going to put the brakes on you a little bit. I know you're getting hungry to jump in, but, but this, this therefore is going to tell us we need to look backwards for one quick second. We need to look backwards to what was unpacked in the verses 1 through 10. And, and man, I wish we had time to look at this whole chapter, but we don't. And I think I would be rioted off the stage. Um, but in this first part of this passage, we see Paul really proclaiming the truth of the gospel that we believers have been raised from death into life. Uh, and made alive with Christ by the gift of God. So that is, that's the framework. That's where we're coming from as we come into chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So remember, we're trying to build this case. What compels us to engage in church? Why should we step outside of our comfort zone? Why should we take a step of faith to where God may be leading us to engage in church? So let's start off with verses 11 through 12. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called by the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at times separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Wow. Okay. 
So uh, sometimes the past can be compelling, and we see Paul, we see Paul really reflecting on the past and calling Gentiles to to remember the past, remember how, what they were united in in the past. Um, and let's be honest, that's not something you or I would want to be united in today. They were united in, the, in these broken relationships with man. We see that as they were alienated from Israel. We see that they were they were strangers. They were also categorized by having broken relationships with God. They were separated, Separated, we see, uh, with Christ. And then we see at the end of verse 12, just this really dark, hard, and heavy-hitting truth of the past. They had no hope, and they were godless. My friends, it, we, a majority of us who are Gentiles, I would imagine, this is our past. We had no hope and we were godless. This word godless here is unique in that it's only used one time in all the scriptures. And it really comes from the Greek word um, that we use to translate into atheist. Right? So these people, our people of the past, were godless. So this might be compelling. This, 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 the reality and the heavy-hitting reality of our past might be compelling for us to move somewhere, but it's not going to be compelling for us to necessarily move to engage in church. So let's continue to read as we pick up in verse 13. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by human hands. So we see, I read verse 11 there again for you again. We just see again this calling back to the past. So let's pick up in uh, verse 13. But now in Christ you were once far off have been made, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near, for through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. Praise God for that response. Praise God for that response to the realities of our past in verses 11 to 12. So we hear, we see here now that we have a hope in Christ's willing sacrifice of his life. A hope in Christ's willing sacrifice of his life. Let's look at that imagery. We just, it, it's very visceral as we look. Verse 13, the blood of Christ has brought us near when we were once far off. Verse 14, the flesh of Christ has made peace where once a wall of hostility stood. And then verse 16, the cross has reconciled us to man and to God. Blood, flesh, cross. We, we cannot skip over the, the, the realities of this, the, the power of this passage. We cannot read these verses without our minds being cast to thinking about our, our Savior hanging on that cross for us. We cannot read these verses and, and not see the blood of, of, of Jesus dripping from the crown of thorns around his head. We, we can't read this verse and, and not just maybe feel a little bit the, the flesh of Christ that's torn as it's rubbing on the back of the cross every time he tries to lift himself up to get a breath. We cannot read these verses and not hear the thud of the hammer as it slowly drives home the nails that pierced Christ's skin and held him to the cross. Christ's blood has brought us near. Christ's flesh has removed hostility and made peace. 
And the cross has reconciled us to man and to God. Hidden in these horrifying images, we see a beautiful work at place. We see a work at place where God is fashioning a gift for you and I. He's fashioning a gift as as we saw in the first half of this passage briefly, this gift of new life. He's fashioning a gift of new life by the giving and the surrendering of his own. But we also see this gift that he's fashioning. He's fashioning this thing of a new community. A new community that we know as the church. It's, It's a mystery, my friends, but we see that very present here. By his blood, through his flesh, on the cross, he is creating this new community for us. So Christ loves us so much that he sacrificed his life to give us these gifts, this gift of new life, but as we focus today, this gift of the church. Not a gift to be set on the shelf and polished off every now and then. Not a gift to be, to be kept in the garage. Not a gift necessarily um, even to be given away, although we could get into the, the details of that. Metaphors break down. But it is a gift for us to treasure with one another. It is a gift for us to treasure with one another. So what compels us to engage in church? Christ's sacrifice of his own body so that he could create a new body compels us to engage in the church. Let's, let's continue to look and just understand what are the purposes now of Christ's sacrifice? What are the purposes of his sacrifice that compels us to engage in church? First, we can see that Christ's sacrifice for peace compels us to engage in church. We can pick up at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. We might, we might come to this and ask, what is the dividing wall that was creating hostility? You know, there's a couple options, by, as we see from commentators. One could be just a very present and physical wall of the temple. The wall that divided the, the outer courtyards where the, where the Gentiles were allowed and the inner, inner um, areas where the, the Jews were allowed. However, we know in Paul's time, the, the, the temple still stood. Those walls were still erect. So it's, it's likely that he's not talking about those physical walls. Rather, what's more probable is he's talking about the, the dividing wall, a spiritual wall that separated the Jews and the Gentiles since the time of Abraham. Since the time Jesus, sorry, since the time God made his covenant with his son Abraham. So this is the dividing wall that exists. But this dividing wall exists no more, as we see. This dividing wall has been removed. It has been broken down in the flesh of our Savior. Verse 13 and 16 now talks about what peace has been achieved with God. So if we see the dividing wall was preventing peace with Gentile and Jew, with man and man. Now let's, let's see in 13 and 16 how we have achieved peace with God. Verse 13 again. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 16. And might, and that God might reconcile us both to Him in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. 
there existed a collective separation from God before Christ. We saw that when we looked at verses uh, 11 and 12. The, the Gentiles had this collective identity that was forever separated from Christ. We saw that they were godless. But Christ's sacrifice, the actual giving of his blood, brought us to God. It's interesting that through Christ's separation, we see this in Matthew 27, as we just studied several weeks ago, we see Christ's separation from God on the cross when he cries out, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? So it is through Christ's separation that we are brought near. What an, what an amazing contrast that is. We also see that there existed a collective hostility between God. We can look back earlier in the chapter, and in, in, in verses 3, we see that we are children of wrath. So there's, a, there's an element of our disobedience has made us children, resulting uh, in God's wrath. We also see... Um, in this, in this passage here, that the hostility that we had with God, it, it, it again is no more. So again, Christ gave himself up to quench that wrath so that the fullness of God's wrath would be taken out on Jesus and not on us. Christ's sacrifice for peace compels us to engage in church. But how do we do this? It means we must recognize first the Spirit, the power of the Spirit to bring peace even when we don't feel it. You know, it's amazing how many times we read something in Scripture, but when we don't experience it, how quickly doubt sets in. So we must fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. We must remember the truth of who he is and the power of the cross, the power of the Spirit to bring peace. It also... That means that as we fix our eyes on that and we, we, we have a hope in prom- the promises that are ours, we must also practice it. We must pursue peace with our brothers and sisters and, and be a representation of reconciliation to the world around us. Second Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we see that in our own reconciliation, we represent as ambassadors our Heavenly Father. There's a famous story uh, that, that took place during Christmas in 1914 on the Western Front of World War I. Uh, you have here on the Western Front, the, the Germans on one side, the Allied forces on another side, and on this starry, frost-laden night, you have peace that was brokered by just the, the enjoyment of some Christmas carols. German troops began singing in the trenches one carol, and then the Allied forces responded back with a volley of the similar carol, and it just kind of went back and forth like a ping-pong match. Interestingly, Time magazine reports that the next morning, in some places, German soldiers began emerging from their trenches, calling out, Merry Christmas in English. Allied soldiers came out warily and greeted them, and, and other Germans held up signs, said, No shoot, don't shoot. And over the course of the day, there was a, there was a brokered peace for, for a matter of hours. Some place, places it lasted longer. But there was a peace that was enjoyed between these two enemies. A peace over what just started with some Christmas girls. However, the peace that occurred in 1914 along the Western Front, we know that was temporary. We know that it was just a truce as fighting resumed and the bloodshed continued. The peace physically and spiritually purchased through the flesh 
of Christ has not proven to be temporary. It is eternal, my friends. It is eternal through the triumphant resurrection and the eternal reign of our King of kings and Lord of lords, Christ Jesus. So Christ's sacrifice for peace brings eternal peace and compels us to engage in church. Next, we see that Christ's sacrifice for unity compels us to engage in church. Let me read verse 14 again. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of his hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And then jumping to verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Christ's sacrifice for unity transformed our relationships with man and God. We saw that in the first part. Christ's sacrifice for peace also transformed our relationships. We now see it with Christ's sacrifice for unity has transformed our relationships. We see at the beginning of verse 14 and then repeated again in 15 that Christ's sacrifice made us one with man. It's interesting that this oneness is not one becoming, Jews didn't become Gentiles and Gentiles didn't become Jews, but there's an entirely new creation here. An entirely new creation has been established by Christ's sacrifice. Verse 15 talks about the abolishment of the law of commandments. Now that law of commandments is, is the Mosaic law. The Mosaic Law was intended really to set apart, right? It's, it's intended to set apart the, the nation of Israel so that they would be preserved for God's glory. But a result of that set-apartness is that that separation prevented unity. It created, again, a division. Things like the dietary restrictions and the rules just continue to add to the ledger. We saw in the beginning of verse 11 that the, both of the groups are identified by their adherence to, to a practice of the Mosaic Law, circumcision. So right there, we saw just a separation that was created. But because of Jesus, the previous rule of life for the Jewish people was ended. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of Christ's sacrifice, he abolished the barrier that stood between Jews and Gentiles. It's noted by the book, uh, by the author of, of a book called Sketches of Jewish Social Life in the Days of Christ. Say that ten times fast. Good luck. All right. That's a new one. Uh, it's, it's said here in this book, the most unexpected and unprepared for revelation from the Jewish point of view was that of breaking down of the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. The taking away of the enmity of the law or hostility, as we see in our, our Bibles here in ESV, the hostility of the law and nailing it to the cross. There's nothing analogous to it, not a hint of it to be found, either in the teaching or the spirit of the times. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes I, I judge so hard when I see the people uh, that are responding to Jesus. But it's interesting. Uh, we, it's important to remember, too, some, some of these things weren't, weren't all shared with, with them. The mystery of the church, the mystery of this dividing wall being broken down, it was as new to them as is new to us at times. Colossians 3.11 says, here, is there, there, here there is not Greek, nor Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So we see that our, 
our unity with man is mysteriously interconnected to the unity of God. Mysteriously interconnected to the unity of God. Interesting, as we pick up in verse 16, we see in the, Jesus might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. So there's just interconnectedness we see here that as we are reconciled together, we are then also reconciled and brought in unity as one body to God. We see this happens in the body. We talk a lot about these different elements of body. We also see it as present in the spirit. And so where our relationship with God once was non-existent, we were godless, hopeless, we now have access to God together in unity. So what do we do with this? <laughs> Sometimes it's difficult to feel unity with God. Uh, you can ask Erin, you can ask my wife, I'm a feeler, I like to feel things, I like to experience them. Um, and that can be a dangerous place sometimes. If, we're, if our relationship with God is based upon our own experience and our own feelings, you know, it's easy to lose hope and forget that we have access to the God of gods, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So there's times that we must join together and, and rehearse the promises of God for each other. We must rehearse promises like Deuteronomy 31.8, God will never leave you nor forsake you. Or Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not calamity to give you a hope in the future. So as we join together in unity, let's join together and encourage one another with the promises of Scripture so that we may, we may live in those truths and, and have the hope of a risen King and Lord present in our life. We see the power of the unity beautifully later in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, uh, starting in verse 11. And we just see this beautiful unity of different roles working together to, to build up the body. And Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 11, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which brings, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So we've seen that Christ's sacrifice for peace compels us to engage in the church. And now in this, this last section, we see that Christ's sacrifice for unity compels us to engage in the church. Next, let's see how Christ's sacrifice for belonging Christ's sacrifice for belonging compels us to engage in the church. So, we haven't got there yet. Let's finish out our passage, uh, and we'll, we'll examine this, starting in verse 19. But as we start at 19, let's reflect back to 12. You know, let's reflect back to that heavy reminder of, of who we were. You know, of whose we were. We were nobodies. I heard it once said that we cannot know who we are, unless we know to whom we belong. We cannot know who we are. We cannot these questions of identity unless we know to whom we belong. And we're going to see in this passage, in this, in this section, we're going to see to whom we belong. So starting in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are no longer strangers. Can I get a witness? I know if you're here in Thailand listening to this, you know what it feels like to be a stranger a little bit, right? I know I do. I've been here for eight months. I've kind of accepted the fact that I'm always going to be a stranger. Even if I could speak the language perfectly, when I walk into a market, I stick out, all right? I I tend to stick out a little bit. Um, I mean, let's say I did learn the language. That wouldn't even make a difference. You know, but just in reality, my language skills make me stick out even worse. Uh, We like to joke around our family of my mixing up of certain Thai phrases and um, there's something about the, the Thai phrase for I'm sorry and no problem that some, always gets flipped for me. Uh, I've done this several times. One of the first times was in Bangkok after our quarantine, and I handed um, money to one of the street vendors to pay for some drinks for Aaron and I. And I proceeded to drop the money into a bucket of ice water that all the drinks were sitting in, right? So now he's trying to fish for all this loose change, and I probably gave him a bunch of like five bots and one bot little guys. Um, who knows what those one bot things are for? I don't even, I haven't figured that out yet. But anyways, he's searching in this pool of icy water with drinks floating around. And, and, and I'm just telling him back, like trying to comfort him and trying to apologize. But I just keep saying, no problem, no problem, no problem, no problem. As he glares at me and I was like, why is he mad? I was like, I was being really polite. I said, I'm sorry. And then Aaron A., Aaron, it helped me understand what I was really saying. So, But what I'm trying to say is we know what it feels like to be strangers. I know what it feels like to be a stranger um, in Thailand. And that's always going to be the case at some level. But in God's kingdom, we have belonging. We are strangers no more. We see here that we are fellow citizens. Fellow citizens join with the saints of the past, present, and future. So the, the lineage that comes before us as we read through the text of the Old Testament, all of those saints are now joined with us as citizens of God's kingdom. Praise the Lord. So we belong to God's kingdom. We are citizens because of his sacrifice. We also see here that we're members of God's household. So again, we f- reflect back, we were once a godless people. We were once a godless people, but now we have a God. We have a God, and he's, he's not just kind of hanging out up there. He's brought us into his house as sons and daughters. The Old Testament covenantal promises that were given to Noah and Abraham and Moses and David now belong to us. That's why we can look through this whole Bible and enjoy the promises that are shared. We don't just have to hang out in the, the New Testament part, right? Because we belong to God's household. We see promises that God gave Abraham, this, this blessing to create an offspring that would, that would number beyond measure. We see promises God made to Moses in Exodus 19 through 24 that they would be a nation set apart. We see promises God made to David, promises that his steadfast love would never depart from him. And his people. But you know what's unique? These promises all came with a condition in the Old Testament. But now what we see in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, these promises are not conditional by any means. They rest solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So my friends, why should, why should we be compelled 
to engage in church is because we are part of the covenantal promises of the Old and the New Testament, and we can claim them as ours. Finally, when we, when we look to answer this question of why can we enjoy and why can we engage in church, and as we're, we're, we're identifying that we have a belonging, this, this final piece of belonging is, is still something that I'm, I'm always trying to understand. And this is a sense that we belong together as a holy temple. We're being fashioned and built together. We're being joined and grown as we see here in this passage. You know, there's this sense of our holy temple, God's holy temple, excuse me, that he is building a, within us is something that uniquely glorifies God um, that we can't do on our own in our own strength. I think there's an element that we look at, even Ephesians 4, that there's an element as we work together and as we build one another up and equip one another, we are bringing God glory in a unique way that we can't on our own. You know, as we looked at this idea of temple, what was the temple for in the Old Testament? The temple was the dwelling place of God. We know that the tabernacle was a footstool of God, which sat within the holies of holies. And what's interesting is this word holy temple here is actually the same word to describe the holies of holies. So what Paul is saying is here, together, friends, we're not just on the outer courtyard. We're just not hanging out. You know, we're kind of close to God. No, we are in the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, when we join together in Christ. So God's dwelling is among us. We have a hope because we have a God who dwells among us. And this belonging that we have brought, that He has brought to our lives also gives us a belonging and a shared purpose to display His glory. Another, another purpose of the temple was to display the glory of God. And now, my friends, as a church, as a body, we have that ability to display the glory of God just like the temple of old. You know, I, I sometimes just try to wrap my mind around what is God's glory like? And I'm drawn to verses uh, like we see in Exodus. When God descends on the tabernacle, <laughs> it's amazing. Moses, the man who spent 40 days and 40 nights talking with God, writing tablets, receiving, I should say, the, the Ten Commandments, Moses can't even go in because the holiness, the glory of God is so powerful. That is what the glory of God is like. The glory of God is so powerful that we see Elijah standing at the crook of a cave. And we see finally but a whisper after, after the wind and the fire and, and, the, and, and all its power came by. We see just but in a whisper God's glory displayed. And Elijah has to cover his face. So my friends, that glory of God, that same glory is present in us and we have been given the, the wonderful task of displaying it to the world. So why should we why should we engage in church? We see in this last last little bit is because we have a belonging to one another, a belonging to Christ that that God has purchased that Christ's blood and his flesh have purchased for us on the cross. And when when we when we fail to recognize that, when we fail to live in that belonging and engage in the church, we're missing out on on an opportunity for 
God to dwell among us. We're missing out on an opportunity to display God's glory. We're missing out on an opportunity for our eyes and our heart and our mind to be fixed on the risen King Jesus. I don't want to miss out on that opportunity. I don't want to miss out on opportunity. I know, I know that none of us do. But sadly, days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, and we find ourselves continuing to be on the fence for one reason or another. So we have seen that Christ's sacrifice compels us to engage in church. We see that his sacrifice compels us to engage because his sacrifice has brought us peace. His sacrifice has brought us unity. His sacrifice has brought us belonging. Praise God that that Christ's sacrifice creates a peace where hostility once existed. That his sacrifice creates a oneness where division once existed. That his sacrifice creates a belonging to him and to one another. So my question today then is, how is God compelling you to engage in church? Perhaps you're listening to this sermon and and you you think through, you know, just where you're at in in this season of life and and there's 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 reasons, right? There's reasons upon reasons that are keeping you potentially from engaging in church. Or perhaps you're listening to this sermon and and engaging in church really isn't even on your mind. Really you're just trying to just trying to understand do I want to engage with Jesus? <laughs> cuz cuz my friends to be willing to engage with the church, we got to engage. We got to be present with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so if that's you, I just I pray that you would find yourself on your knees with your eyes fixed on Jesus, just wrestling to understand who he is. Who, what is it about the love that he's, that he's demonstrated for us on the cross? What is it about the gift that he's given us in the church that would compel us to move? You know, I just, I think it's important just to share this one last thought. And it's a thought that church and church people are always going to frustrate us. They're always going to disappoint us at some level. And sadly, the church will even hurt us. But make no mistake. Make no mistake. The church is not our hope. The church is not our hope. The risen King Jesus is our hope. This is the same King Jesus that turned water into wine just to preserve the unity and the dignity of a family. This is the same King Jesus that stood at the entrance to the tomb of Lazarus and called forth the death to life. And this is the same King Jesus that stood as the risen Lord. Stood as the risen Lord behind Mary Magdalene and tenderly called him, tenderly called her to himself. And this is the same King Jesus that one day will illuminate the new Jerusalem. We see in Revelations, for the city will have no need of sun or moon on it, for the glory of God gives it light. This is the same King Jesus, my friends. This is why we should engage in church, for the glory of God. He chose to sacrifice his life for us so that we could have unity. Let us choose to follow him. All right, I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and we're just going to have a time, um, a time of reflection here briefly. And during this time of, of reflection, I just want you to sit. Hopefully you can uh, bow your head or uh, just be still wherever you're at.
you know, following Jesus and and taking those steps of faith to engage in church is not something we can do on our own strength. Following Jesus takes a, a conforming of our will to His. It takes a, a transformation of our of our thoughts and our beliefs and our actions. So, I just I just encourage you during this this few minutes to ask Jesus how He wants you to submit to Him in the light of today's passage. What steps of faith does He want you to take? I'll close in prayer here in a little bit. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you with open arms and an open heart and open mind. And Lord, we ask that you shape and you mold us. We ask that we would be clay in your hands. Conform us to your will. Conform us to one another. Jesus, thank you that you came, that you sacrificed your life so that we could enjoy peace with you, peace with our brothers and sisters. We can enjoy unity. We can enjoy belonging. Father, there's nothing that we have done to earn any of this. And so we come before you and we just praise you. We praise your name, Jesus. Thank you. Shape and mold our hearts, Lord. And may we follow you where you lead, one step at a time. And may we just, may we have a heart that seeks to engage with your church and love your church because you have demonstrated for us what that looks like. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Dot